this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Wednesday, June 26th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to get sucked into the siren song. Ten candidates will enter. Ten will leave. And then the next day, ten more will enter. But nine will leave. Oh, wait, no, I forgot to count Moulton. Thought he was Swalwell. Ah, uh, yes, the morass in Miami. The Blabarama near Little Havana. The 8 minute 45 seconds per candidate, which will determine the presidency. You realize a full 45 or 50 minutes may lapse between moments of Tim Ryan talking, sharing his thoughts, and why he, Tim Ryan, is the right person to lead this country, and also his thoughts inevitably complaining that he needs more time to explain why he, Tim Ryan, is the best person to lead this country. Yes, it's wine and wait in the sunshine. Yes, it's wine and wait in the sunshine state. And it's all going down tonight, 9 p.m., 8, 7 Central and Mountain, or as I call it, Klobuchar and Hickenlooper. What can be learned in this format with this many people without tonight, without Biden, Bernie, Buttigieg, or Bennett? Okay, forget Bennett. It works for the alliteration, but it doesn't work to make the point. Without Biden, Bernie, Buttigieg, or Kamala Harris? It's a weird setup. There are five candidates who are polling in any sort of statistically significant way. And Elizabeth Warren, alone among the five, will be isolated up on the stage tonight, whereas the other four get to go after each other tomorrow. What's Elizabeth Warren going to do? Score a big point off Tulsi Gabbard? I think this, by the way, will be John Delaney's strategy. His only way forward will be just to immediately come out and say, my name is John Delaney, I'm running for president with one message, Tulsi Gabbard's a little nuts. Thank you. She likes Assad. Thank you. Good night. In some quarters, they're banking on the Booker bounce. Others expect the Ryan rise, the Beto bump, the Inslee incline, or the de Blasio adagio. No way an adagio is slow and steady. I think he takes slow and steady right now. Anyway, here are some possible lines of attack from Amy Klobuchar. You know, Senator Warren, I'm the fourth most popular senator in all the Senate, according to a poll of my constituents, and you're the fourth least popular. Discuss. And then Bill de Blasio jumps in. Hey, hey, I'm less I'm less popular than she is. I'm actually unpopular in my home city. Elect me president. And then John Delaney jumps in. I have no name recognition in my home state. Also, Tulsi's a nutbag. Here's a question that the moderators might pose. You know, you all have these plans about what you'll do, what legislation you'll enact. But at most, the Senate will be 52 Democrat, 48 Republican. Without a filibuster-proof majority, or possibly with Democrats being in the minority, how do you expect to get anything passed? And then Jay Inslee could say, well, I'll tell you what I've done to prevent that possibility. I work hard on the state level. I try to make Washington a democratic state. And I'm looking at you, Beto and Julian Castro. I'm not wasting my time on a quixotic presidential bid when John Cornyn is there in Texas, all ripe for the plucking. 
And then de Blasio bursts in. I agree. John Cornyn is beatable, but I just want you all to know that I'm actually less popular than he is. Much less. Okay, well, that is all the time we have. Sorry, we didn't get to you, Representative Moulton. Actually, I'm Tim Ryan. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Tune in tomorrow when Andrew Yang promises voters. Starting at age 18, you will receive $1,000 a month. Act now. Don't delay. Operators are standing by. And now on to the spin room where Jay Inslee experiences acute esprit d'escalier. And John Delaney tries to get Tulsi to notice him. On the show today, they say politics is a game. I don't know about that. But you know what is a game? Baseball. Baseball, Ray. But it's a serious business with lots of money at stake. It's also a laboratory for ideas. And these days for challenging old ways of thinking. In fact, the challenges are coming so fast and so furious that they're not just challenging the old, old ways. They're also challenging the new old ways of thinking. This brings us to the MVP machine, which the subtitle says concerns how baseball's new nonconformists are using data to build better players. So in this discussion that's coming up, I will make this a universal conversation with applications to thinking and innovation in general, and just a dusting of the number three man in the Indians rotation in specific. And then in the spiel, I will follow on the baseball theme with a man who is synonymous with spitting sunflower seeds mixed with tobacco and being chased around the diamond by the Philly fanatic. Yes, George Will. But first, here is Ben Lindbergh, one of the authors of The MVP Machine. When Ben Lindbergh writes a book, there are only three true outcomes, education, entertainment, and elucidation. You know, two of those words are synonyms, and I'm really making a baseball pun. Ben Lindbergh is a staff writer for The Ringer. He hosts the Effectively Wild podcast, a contributor to The Great Collection, upon further review, The Greatest What Ifs in Sports History. And he is the co-author of The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to build better players, co-author with Travis Sawchick, who I, who I barred from the studio so I could have Ben all to myself. Hello, Ben. How are you? Good to be here. And thank you for mentioning the book before your book, even though your book <laughs> is my greatest credit and yeah. pride. So I want to say this to you, the Gist listener. We're going to go baseball a little bit, but I want to expand it out. And I think, you know, there are, there are a couple ways to universalize the very in-depth, fascinating stuff that you come across. And I think the most obvious one is to tell a story through people. And I think your audience is doesn't need that maybe as much as my audience. So I want to just tell this story through Trevor Bauer, sure, who's this really interesting character. If... If this were the blind side, he'd be Michael Orr. But Michael Orr is this really sympathetic character. (laughs) And Trevor Bauer is kind of an asshole in some ways. So take me back to like, I don't know, when when was Trevor Bauer a a scuffling five-man in the Indian rotation? When was that, 2015, 2016? Yeah, so really 2018 was his first year as an elite starting pitcher. And we kind of follow him through that season in the book. And he really, since he was little, and he was little, which is probably why he adopted these ideas, he's been a pioneer in player development, in adopting technology into his preparation. And that's because he was not a natural athlete. He was not this big, hulking, strapping guy. He wasn't fast. He couldn't jump high. Yeah. He says he has a low testosterone level. We didn't check that, but I'll take his word for it. So <laughs> not something you brag about usually. <laughs> no, probably not. Power, yeah. Right. 
So he has tried to find and use every advantage he could. And so when he was an amateur player in high school, in college, he was constantly getting on the wrong side of his coaches because he would question every teaching that they had. Here's how you're supposed to pitch. Here's what your mechanics should look like. And he would always ask, why? What's the basis for that? What's the empirical backing? And often there wasn't one. And so he would look for one. And, you know, he was among the first to adopt, say, weighted balls, which is something that pitchers use now as a a way to just kind of mix things up, get away from the standard issue baseball, get out of their heads a little by using something different. Which is crazy because, like, you swing a weighted bat or two bats on the on (laughs) deck circle, and they've been doing this for 100 years. And what counts as innovation in baseball is like, well, the (laughs) other thing that you pick up, maybe a heavier one of that could help. Exactly. And so he couldn't even buy weighted balls. They weren't a product you could buy. So he and his dad would just soak balls in water and they'd get all smelly and disgusting, but they'd be heavier and they would do the trick. So his dad has an engineering background and sort of took an engineering approach to him. And he was a a willing participant in this process. So was it that pitchers, you know, they know that there's a lot of craft involved and pitchers would always work on different pitches in the offseason and a good pitching coach would teach grip. Like these were all known, maybe Mm -hmm. not known to as fine a degree. Did they not realize that things as in-depth as fingertip placement would have that big an effect? Or was it more, there was no way to really study it and therefore they didn't have a conception of it. Let me let me just give you an analogy. Before there were cars, we didn't know of this concept of miles per hour. Mm-hmm. I mean, people knew what a mile was and people know an hour, but if you said, you know, how fast does a horse go? People wouldn't be able to express it in the concept of miles per hour. Right. So before this technology was the idea of so finely moving your fingertips, even in the consciousness of pitchers and pitching coaches who knew that there was something to that. Right. Yeah. All this technology has enabled players to break down exactly what they're doing in greater detail. And once they identify what they're doing, then they can find the flaws. They can, in theory, fix the flaws. And in the past, I mean, guys would mess around with grips all the time. You know, teammates would show each other how they threw this pitch, but it was imprecise. It was trial and error. Maybe you'd come across the right coach who could help you, who could teach you something. But often coaches kind of have one go-to thing that they tell everyone to do. And if that doesn't work for you, then you're out of luck. And now it's it's (laughs) become this more scientific process where you sit down and you say, okay, what pitch should I be throwing? What would work best? What would pair best with my other pitches? Okay, now I've determined that. How am I going to develop this pitch or refine one of my current pitches to get it closer to that ideal? And that's by studying this footage, by adjusting it from pitch to pitch. It used to be that practice in baseball, you know, you'd take batting practice, you'd throw a bullpen session. It was just to get warm, really. You weren't getting better. You weren't challenging yourself. A batting practice fastball, that's something people say. It's a meatball. It's one that you're just laying in there. It's not hard to hit. Whereas now it's all about, okay, I have to have a goal in every practice session. If I'm trying to throw a pitch that moves this way, okay, I'm going to throw one. I'm going to look at the footage. How is it coming out of my hand? I'm going to look at this other device that is telling me exactly how it was spinning, exactly how it was moving. Is that closer to what I want or is it farther away from what I want? And by getting that instant feedback, pitch after pitch, swing after swing, you can get better much faster in a much more concerted way than you could before. How much interaction? So your co-author, Travis, he lives in Ohio and probably had the bigger pipeline to Travis, He did, yes. How much interaction have you had with him? 
almost none, yeah. <laughs> which is a, a strange situation because he's kind of the, the lead character of the book in a way. It's not a book about him, but he is the figure we use to illustrate some of these ideas. And so Travis- was, Let me interrupt, but yeah. if he was a more, not compelling, but if he was a cuddlier figure, might yeah. the book have been about him? Uh, I I think it's we didn't want it to be the story of any one player because it's a, a larger movement that's affecting a lot of players and a lot of teams. And you just have to figure out how to tie it together. And people, when they read stories, they want to read a story about a person that has, right. you know, a, a beginning, a middle and end. And so he was kind of the, the good frame for the story. And it so happened that we were following him during the season when he was doing this very interesting experiment using this slider that he built. And it worked out really well. And he became one of the best pitchers in baseball. So, you know, if that hadn't happened, then maybe. Maybe the story is completely different. But we, because of his off-the-field issues, his personality, we were careful not to glorify him, not to gloss over his flaws and transgressions, and to just say this is who he is. You know, he he often missteps and says things he shouldn't. And I think you'd, you won't necessarily like him more after you read the book. We've heard from a lot of people who said, I disliked him coming in. I still dislike him. I dislike him even more. But I do understand that he has had an impact on other players. So it seems to me that all innovations in baseball, specifically with baseball, are decried as changing the game, ruining the game, going against some ideal of playing the game the right way or fun. And a lot of these are ridiculous critiques. There is, if people don't know, there's something called the shift, which is putting the defense where the ball might be hit. I think that's a great idea because Uh that is a point of (laughs) defense. Yes. (laughs) Then there is this other trend of kind of lots of strikeouts and lots of home runs. And I don't know if it's ruining the game, but my God, games are long and nothing happens. Right. All right. So as I think about what Trevor Bauer is doing and what the fine, very finely tuned MVP machine um, acolytes are doing, I'm of two minds. I don't have a nostalgia for, you know, baseball's bucolic past and having more ignorance. Like, it's good to have more information. On the other hand, there is, I think there is something legitimate about there being less humanity and more technology involved in being great. It seems like baseball is trending towards, if we just had really efficient robots doing this, that (laughs) would be the ideal. But what do you think as a baseball fan? I think on an individual level, it's often uplifting. This movement, I think it can be an inspirational story. This player who was ruled out, who was believed to not have the skills that would get him to the big leagues. Well, it turns out that he had this latent talent hidden within him the whole time. So I think on that level, it's very inspirational and can be applied beyond baseball where there's something we can all be better at. So I think you can apply some of those principles. On the other hand, what's good for players and what's good for teams is not necessarily good for the sport of baseball. And we talk about that in the book. Players are getting better every year to the point now where they're basically breaking baseball, at least as it's traditionally worked. And so Pitchers want strikeouts. That's the best outcome for them. Hitters want home runs. That's the best outcome for them. They're both getting better at getting those respective outcomes. And so you end up with fewer balls in play, fewer fielding opportunities, less base running. It's a more static all or nothing game. And a lot of people don't like that. And I think that's a problem because these trends have been pointing in one direction now. All of these player development innovations that I wrote about are exacerbating that problem, if you believe it's a problem. And I don't think it's going to reverse 
reverse itself. And so much like in the tech world, when we have these wonderful innovations and we're you know creating progress and then it turns out there are these unintended side effects and consequences. And that's the case in baseball, too. What's what's good for players and teams. The incentives don't always align with the sport. You also have some ramifications for the free agent market, for the labor market. Tensions between players and owners are at a high now for the past 20 years or so, and that's not an accident. We've seen major league salaries, the average salary decrease in back-to-back years, which is unheard of in the free agency era. And that's because of this development movement, because teams are thinking, I don't have to go pay a premium for this free agent who has this track record of being good. I can go promote a prospect who I've groomed with all of these ideas and philosophies, or I can go pick up a player who maybe has the raw talent, but he just hasn't put it together. And we can use these tools and technology to make him replicate the performance that we would get from the more expensive guy. And so you have all these veterans now who are sitting out there saying, I've done this and this. Here's my track record. I should be paid accordingly. And teams are saying, no, thanks. I'll go get the generic equivalent of this guy. And in the end, once I change his swing, once I teach him a new pitch, he'll be just as good as the guy who comes with a higher price tag. So that's a problem for players. Yeah. So to go back to this idea of uh, robots versus humanity, I think what's going to happen is when they're uh, now that we're in the era when players who are really average to below average scuffling to, you know, in between the minors and majors find a pitch or find uh, a magic feather. And Trevor Bauer is not even the best example of this. Rich Hill is who is this guy who was a pretty bad pitcher for the Cubs and then develops this crazy curveball which had never been seen and he's uh extremely effective pitcher on the dodgers and that's fantastic we could get behind his story to the extent where i'm not even sure rich hill has a personality maybe you know (laughs) but it was so exciting when he was throwing these curveballs but soon we're going to get past that with the players who are currently in the major leagues like there won't be any reclamation projects when Mm -hmm. this takes hold right and then the joy of uh, the story of rebirth will be gone and it will be all players who've been, you know, built into these uh, super robots. And then at that point, I think we're, we're really going to ha- have to grapple with what we want a baseball player to be. Right. Yeah. Rich Hill, who's a great guy, by the way, he was 35 when it wasn't even that he learned a new pitch. It was that someone looked at the data and said, you already have this really great pitch and you're yeah. not throwing it. And it was a crazy pitch. Yeah. And it was at a time when now, I guess, Kurt Curveballs are everything. Right. But He's been a trailblazer. Four years ago, the idea was, oh, yeah, curveballs are done. The batters can see the curve. Right. It was or a done over it, pitch. It was yeah. all establish your fastball. Everything works off the fastball. He right. doesn't have a great fastball. And so someone finally told him, your curveball is amazing. Just throw the curveball all the time. And it worked really well. And he's been a trendsetter where we've seen that movement catch on. But I think you're right. That late career reinvention may be rare just because guys will have those epiphanies much earlier, much younger. But I think personality and makeup still plays a really important part in this process because it's not just as simple as someone diagnosing the flaw and saying, do this instead of doing that. You also have to have the player as a a participant in this process. He has to be willing to embrace these ideas, this new information. He has to be willing to accept input and say, yes, I need help from someone else. Even if I'm a major leaguer, maybe I can still be better and maybe I should listen to this person who can tell me something. And if you devote yourself to that practice, I mean, Trevor Bauer throws thousands and thousands of pitches every offseason to perfect these things. So it's not snap your fingers. Sometimes there are really extraordinary stories where a guy will just 
just changes swing and overnight it's he's a new guy. But Bauer really puts a lot of time into this thing. So not everyone is wired that way where you're willing to practice in this really focused, deliberate way. Some guys have a lot of talent and they just want to skate by on the talent and they want to say, I've never had to apply myself and challenge myself because things have come naturally for me. So I think the personality, in a sense, is even more important than it used to be because talent is taking a little bit less of a central role. So whether you're willing to accept this input and then apply it, even if it's not easy, I think is going to be a bigger part of determining who succeeds and who doesn't. All right. Two more things. They're both on the title page of the book. It is called the MVP machine. Shouldn't it have been called the Cy Young machine? I mean, pitchers <laughs> are benefiting from this a lot more than hitters. Yeah, that was the, the that was true initially. And uh, Travis and I actually said, can't we get a pitcher on the cover as well? Because this isn't just about hitters. But our publisher thought hitters sell yeah. better. I Especially don't know. <laughs> hitters in this non-determined, possibly Colorado Rocky uniform, yeah. like Sunday day uniform. But there is an MVP in the book who's a hitter, Mookie Betts, who won the MVP award for the Red Sox last year. He's a guy who was already playing at a high level. And that's the interesting trend now. It's not just guys on the fringes who are saying, well, I need to do something to save myself to preserve my career. It's guys who are already good and are saying, well, maybe I can still be better. And the second question, good answer. The second question I have is about the subtitle, how baseball's new nonconformists are using data to build better players. Did the publishing company say, get nonconformists on there? Is nonconformist really the best way to describe what's going on? I don't know whether it's the, the easiest word to, to pronounce I mean, and remember. Like people, are, are business types going to be drawn to the word nonconformist? I, well, our publisher thought MVP was something that business people would like. Because, yes. you know, you talk about MVPs in, in the business world. I don't know about nonconformists, but it is true. A lot ooh, of the ooh, figures. Better titled, the unicorn machine. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe the paperback edition. Ben Lindbergh, along with Travis Sawchick, is the author of The MVP Machine, How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. And let me also plug specifically the Effectively Wild podcast, which I have to admit, the gist is never going to catch in terms of numbers of episodes. <laughs> you are catching up because we started as a daily show and then we went to three times a week. You're still doing the daily thing, so you're getting so we, there. We have to plot that out. And also, <laughs> let me also say this in this long outro to Ben. Ben once told me that he has missed, what, like a dozen episodes of the gist ever? <laughs> <laughs> the only ones I've missed are ones during crunch time of the book and I'm catching up. Oh, thank God. Double, <laughs> listen in double speed. Ben, thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. And we shall extend this theme of baseball, the national pastime. But think about that phrase, the national pastime. It's a little like nobody beats the whiz. It has ceased to be a lived claim, and it's more just a dusty slogan. Once you get the trademark, you get lazy. As Ben and I have been discussing, the game is being driven by smarter, more strategic decisions, like purposefully trying to hit home runs over doubles or singles. Another trend that we talked about is aggressively positioning defenders so that they, based on the tendencies of the batter, might go to one side of the infield entirely. That's called the shift. In fact, all of this innovation is something of a shift. And to fans of baseball, that may be troubling. And to non-fans, these shifts are cementing their status as just that, non-fans. Well, there is no bigger baseball fan than George Will. The columnist was here on The Gist the other week to talk about his book, The Conservative Sensibility. And at the end, I threw a couple curveballs at him. Maybe they were sliders, kind of a slurve. Here is that. 
If baseball existed when you were a kid in the form it does now with so many strikeouts and so many home runs and so few balls in play, would it have less appeal to you? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm thinking that my next book may be just exactly about this, that when you have more strikeouts than hits in a season, as we did in 2018, when you have only the so-called three true outcomes, walk, strikeout, home runs, when you have approaching four minutes between the ball being put in play. Uh, the game is finally becoming boring. Even to me, when it's boring me, <laughs> it's really in trouble. You know, the great Red Smith, great sports writer, said baseball is dull only to the dull. Not anymore. <laughs> it's becoming dull to people who liked baseball. When you had triples, when you had men on first base because then you got double plays, things like that. I miss the old game. Do you put the shift in the list of things that are hurting the game? It is hurting the game, but that's because what the, uh, and here my market, my conservative sensibility comes in. The market will provide. The, mar- the shifts are creating a market demand, whether they know it or not, for another Rod Carew and Troni Gwynn and Wade Boggs. And the time will come when people will be shifting, and up will come a slender guy from Panama like uh, uh, Rod Carew and start spraying hits around the ballpark, and the shift will go away and the fans will come back. Instead, we're probably going to have this year our fifth consecutive year of declining uh, attendance. So what would you do to cure baseball, keeping in mind you have to be consistent with your prescriptions about government, which is uh, a suspicion of top-down solutions? Uh, I'm saying baseball generally corrects itself. Mm -hmm. People say baseball stuck. Baseball is like the climate. It's always changing. That's the beginning of wisdom here. One of the statistics that the commissioner is very fond of, and I think he's right to be, 1960 World Series, Game 7, a 10-9 game, slugfest of a series, Pittsburgh against the the Yankees, Mazeroski home run, walk-off, wins the World Series. In that Game 7, do you know how many strikeouts there were? Tell me. Zero. Wow. No one struck out. Now, partly— It was shame. It was (laughs) shame-based. Exactly. Well, also, one of the pitchers in that game was 5'6", Elroy Mm -hmm. Face, and another was 5'8", Bobby Shantz. So now you've got this endless supply of guys who are 6'5 and throw 98, and it's changed the game. But the game in the past has adjusted. The game will adjust again if we get out of the way. That's the conservative sensibility applied to the national pastime. All right. I will ask you one last question. It is, uh, very broadly speaking, a baseball trivia question. It is this. What does the seventh inning stretch have to do with Handel's Messiah? How are they similar? (laughs) I could give you the origins of the seventh inning stretch, according to baseball lore, but I don't have the answer to your question. (laughs) Well, give us the origins, and then I'll fill you in with the answer. The lore is that uh, William Howard Taft, who in, when he waxed and wanes, but mostly waxed in his weight, got up to over 300 pounds. He was so heavy, they had to, when he traveled, they had to bring a special bathtub along. William Howard Taft was a great baseball fan, and he supposedly went to a national uh, Washington game uh, and found the seat understandably confining and uncomfortable, and by the seventh inning, he couldn't take it anymore, and he stood up. Mm-hmm. The crowd polite in those days and respectful of the presidency in those days, 
thought he was leaving and stood up as a sign of respect. And according to baseball, which is full of origin myths, that is the origin of the seventh inning stretch. I assume that's about as accurate as the Cooperstown origin myth, which is a complete fiction. Well, another fiction, I believe, is the story that during a performance of Handel's Messiah, when the Hallelujah Chorus came on, King George II, who was in attendance, in fact stood, which is why, just like the seventh inning stretch, why we stand during the Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah. And that's what they have in common. Well, that's perfect. (laughs) I choose to believe both. That's right. Sometimes it's uh, too good to check. Exactly. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They have been feverishly working with micro cameras to up their editing game. And they discovered with just the right grip and a gentle toggle on the fade, they can make my because sound like because. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, she and nine other senior producers will share a stage at the American Airlines Arena where they each get seven minutes plus an opening statement to make the case why their podcast network is the best podcast network. And then the next night, 10 other senior producers will do that. And those will include the people from NPR and Gimlet, but also that weird podcast just about pens. Today on What Next, uh, something of the Gist Sister podcast. This is a nice compendium for the Gist episode of yesterday, where in the spiel, I talked about Pete Buttigieg. The What Next team talks all about the so-called officer-involved shooting that is rending South Bend. Listen to What Next, posts every day in your feed around 6 a.m. Would you like to subscribe to the Gist newsletter? I bet you would. We'll tell you every day what went on on the Gist. We'll also answer a trivia question. Let's make it baseball trivia this week. Here goes. Pie Trainer, Hall of Fame third baseman of the Pittsburgh Pirates. That's a coincidence. But what's not a coincidence is that his name was Pie. For a specific reason. Why was Pie Pie? You could get the answer on Saturday and every Saturday. Go to slate.com slash gist news. The gist. You know, if you add up the polling numbers of tonight's Democrats, they collectively add up to less than what Ed Muskie was polling at in 1971. And we all know that Ed Muskie went on to greatness. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.